Well, our, uh, we continue with our Advent series through Isaiah and some of the prophecies about Jesus in Isaiah. So this morning we're in Isaiah 9, starting in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder The rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior, in in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we... uh, it's good that we're here because we need God's word to make sense of our lives and of the world around us. So let's go in prayer. Father, we ask that you would speak to us by your word this morning, that we would understand more clearly what it is you have for us, what is in store for our lives, what is in store even for our world, what you have done through Jesus. We ask that you would show it to us this morning in his name. Amen. So, on Christmas Eve 1914, the, uh, the world was at war. For about six months, World War I had been raging. Uh, it had been frantic, of course, in the late summer and into the fall as all the different nations that got involved in that complicated convoluted uh, war uh, rushed to battle lines. But by Christmas, the trenches had been dug. And on the front, between the German soldiers and the British and French soldiers, on Christmas Eve, they were dug in. In what is undoubtedly just some of the worst conditions you can imagine, being stuck in winter in a trench. But some of the German soldiers decided to light candles and put them on the top of the trench because it was Christmas Eve. And then they started singing carols. And it wasn't long before the British and French soldiers started singing along with them. And on Christmas Day in 1914, uh, one of the weirdest things happened in modern warfare (laughs) Slowly, a couple of the soldiers started wandering out into no man's land between the trenches. And before long, the trenches had emptied. 
And these soldiers spent the day together, trading what little gifts they could kind of give to one another, uh, allegedly, you know, playing soccer games and <laughs> doing other things. Um, but it wasn't long, of course, before that was all over. And they were back in the trenches. And for the subsequent Christmases that happened during World War I, apparently this happened a few times in a few small places, but as the casualties mounted, it was increasingly difficult to imagine wanting to cross that line and celebrate peace. I'm going to switch... Um, I'm not using that one again. Um, We talk about peace a lot at Christmas, right? Uh, Of course we do. The angels sang about it to the the shepherds. Uh, All of our songs talk about peace. I mean, some of my favorite, like, modern... Christmas songs are ones that were written in the 60s and 70s, right? And they're all about peace. They're not exactly orthodox. But there's nothing better than Stevie Wonder singing Someday at Christmas. The, uh, the problem, of course, is that our world uh, has a hard time understanding peace. We have a hard time understanding peace. But that is, in one sense, what this passage is all about. So we're going to think about what the absence of peace is, what the presence of peace is like, and what the source of peace is. So the absence of peace, the presence of it, and the source of it. This passage picks up in darkness. That's where chapter 9 starts. It's actually a continuation of what we had thought about last week in some ways. We were in chapter 7 last week, uh, and we found that, strangely enough, that famous verse about the virgin conceiving and bearing a son named Emmanuel, God with us, shows up in the context of judgment. That uh, King Ahaz, the the king in the southern part of Israel, uh, was scared. The northern part of Israel, which was separated off already, uh, and another nation were coming against him, and he was calling on the Assyrian Empire to help out. And God tells him it's not going to go well. Yes, he'll be delivered from those he was scared of, his closest neighbors. In fact, northern Israel is destroyed by Assyria just 13 years later. But things are going to go badly for him as well and for southern Israel. And, and what, what takes place over the rest of chapter 7 is, is, pro, is a prophecy about that judgment. And it continues on into chapter 8. And at the very end of chapter 8, the conditions of being besieged by Assyria are called a thick darkness. And so it's in this context that we hear about the light, about the gloom being dispersed in verse 1. In fact, it's interesting that the very region that it talks about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, those were two of the tribes of Israel, is around the, the northern part of northern Israel, up around the Sea of Galilee, which was one of the first areas destroyed, decimated by the Assyrians. 
And all this judgment is really about the darkness of the world. That's what judgment always is, isn't it? It is the wages of sin. It is, uh, it is the results of the sin that we commit. And it is the sin that others commit against us. This is why God's judgment and oppression are often interconnected. Not because God's judgments are not right, but because the reality is that we, in a world trapped in sin, right, we are often on the losing end in both ways. We commit sin, and others sin against us. And the cycle, of course, is that those who are on the one, at one time, victims often become the victimizers. And that story gets played out over and over and over again in human history. And strife happens, of course, at these sort of large geopolitical levels, right? But it happens in small ways, too. It happens at families. Some of the bitterest strife is in families. Uh, it happens in our workplace. It's fostered naturally in our hearts. I mean, how many horrible things have you thought about others that you've never put to words, but it's there? We all say we want peace. I think we all do at one level, but we're all locked in strife at the same time. And what do we do to, to seek peace? I mean, some of us don't seek peace. Some of us are addicted to conflict. Um, some of us are addicted to conflict in certain aspects of our life. We may be a very kind person, but man, in that one with that one particular relationship, in this one kind of situation, the battle lines are drawn. You may be a pleasant enough person in every other context. But in that one situation, you're in it for the war. No holds bar. Okay, so we, we may give in to the strife. Sometimes we just try to avoid it. This is family, isn't it? There's that one person in your family that everybody avoids riling up, right? That one person that's like, well, no, no, don't cross them. Or that subject, right? It may not be the whole person, right? But it's like, oh man, don't bring up that subject with dad. You know, like that, he's going to lose it. Boy, in an election year, we can all feel that, can't we, right? Doesn't matter which side of that election you're on. You know you can get somebody in your family riled up. <laughs> Maybe it's you. We try to avoid some things, but the problem is that's a kind of fake peace, right? That is the peace of tyranny. We just allow somebody to hold us hostage because we're all scared of setting them off. Another option is we might separate ourselves. We might cut ourselves off from others. Now, there's, a pro, there's appropriate kinds of boundaries, right? 
Uh, that's important to know. There are certainly extreme cases like abuse where those boundaries need to be pretty firm. They need to be specific. But there is also a way in which we, in the name of a kind of self-care, just cut off anybody that we find difficult. And I'm afraid the wisdom of this is all around us. Well, if that person doesn't affirm what you think or feel all the time, then that person's a toxic influence on your life. Now, I'm not saying there aren't people that are toxic influences on your life, right? But we really easily just start to identify anybody that's, that we have a hard time with as that kind of person. And the problem is, and when we adopt this as a strategy in life with everybody, we end up very lonely indeed, right? We are cut off from everybody, so we're at peace, but we're at peace because there's nobody to be in conflict with. The other option, of course, is the peace that the gospel talks about. Which is not merely about self-preservation, but reconciliation. It's not merely about the absence of conflict, but the love fostered. We're going to unpack that a little bit more, but that is the option I think we all really want. We may not like what it takes. We might be scared about what it takes, but that's the option we're looking for, is to actually love and be loved. But before we get there, it is worth remembering that we are in a world of darkness. Not dark because God made it that way, but because we've made it so. In fact, we're, we're in at the Advent season, and here's the strange thing. <laughs> in the church calendar, Christmas, the Christmas season starts on Christmas Day, <laughs> and then there's 12 days of celebration with, after that. It's the 12 days of Christmas. But it starts on Christmas Day. The, the idea of Advent is, has historically been a season of reflection about our need for Jesus to enter in. A little wonder that themes about darkness and light are so prominent in Advent. Of course, that sits a little awkwardly with the kind of commercial Christmas season uh, that is all over the place. Now, I'm not, I'm not here to pick a fight about any of that stuff. I kind of enjoy the irony, actually. But, the, but it is odd, right, uh, that we so often uh, are singing these songs in the lead up to Christmas. But increasingly, you know, you, you hear less and less Christmas carols and more Christmas songs. Because it's more pleasant to think about Santa than uh, how far the curse is found. And of course, what we're invited into into Advent is to recognize that Jesus wasn't just a cute baby that showed up into a nice family in a nice part of town where nothing was very difficult, but that he is the light of the world that entered into the darkness. I think if there is a good Advent movie, it's the Charlie Brown Christmas Because it's about how difficult all of his relationships are. (laughs) 
And it is about the truth of the gospel in the midst of it. Well, the absence of peace then is this darkness, is this strife that we, not just other people, other places, other times, but that we engage in, that we have wrought in our own lives. But the peace of God, and this is where, pick back up here, is entering into the world. The light is shining into it. Notice this in verse 2, right? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And, and look how that's described when the, when the light dawns on them. In verse 3, it is restoration and flourishing, right? They're, they're multiplying, they're increasing, there's joy, it is, like, it is the harvest season. And it is celebrating the spoils of a war that they've actually won. Not that they've lost. That leads into, and that leads into verses 4 and 5 and this reflection on being oppressed and how oppression is broken. And it is just like the victory against Midian. And I know that's right in the front of your mind, exactly what that is. Uh, but there's a story back in Judges, near the beginning of Judges, uh, the, story, the story of Gideon. Uh, it starts in Judges 6, but... What happens in, in God calls him and there's a sign and there's all these things going on. Chapter 7, he is finally gathering an army to challenge the Midianites who have oppressed Israel. And he gathers a big army, 32,000. Not, not too shabby. It's not nearly the size of the Midianite army, but it's still not too shabby. Uh, but God says, uh, let's thin the ranks. I've got other plans. And he thins it down to 300 people. I'm not going to get into the, the whole story. But he thins it down to 300 people. And they win in this spectacular fashion. Because God tells them to show up by night. The Midianites don't know what's going on. They're confused. They end up thinking this is a much bigger army than it actually is. And, uh, and they strike them down and most of the Midianites flee. It's this spectacular moment where God shows up and gives them a victory that they can't explain by their own effort, that they couldn't have accomplished by their own effort. So, so, the, so Isaiah is thinking about this day when God showed up in an unexpected way and delivered them from oppression. And what this peace will look like is taking all the instruments of war in verse 5 and burning them because he's not going to need them. Just let them go. So that peace here is not merely the absence of strife, as we were saying, but it is about healthy relationships, whole lives, right? It, you know, we could say flourishing. Uh, that word means a lot of things to a lot of different people, but uh, this is about being healed. This is about not only not being oppressed, but of thriving. A community that isn't just not under the thumb of somebody else, but is doing well. Where people are looked at, not looked after, but not only that, they're celebrated and there's joy right at the heart of it. This idea of peace, 
Shalom in Hebrew is not just a negative thing, like someone's not oppressing you. It's that, in fact, there is love that's fostered, celebrated. Joy is is right in the center of it. That's for another week. But shalom is this positive thing then. And it is a divine gift. That just like when God intervened with Gideon, it's, it's a divine gift. It's unexpected. It's not our doing. And I'm not saying that God doesn't engage us in that in some way. He still called Gideon and those 300 soldiers. But that it was his initiative. And he defined the way in which it worked out. That's an important piece, I think. Because we have our ideas of what peace would look like. We have our thoughts about what it would be like to be a a peaceable community. But it's always going to involve being delivered from those that are oppressive. And so we are tempted all kinds of different ways. And one of the most obvious ways is to think that we want peace... We want the end goal of peace, but the means by which we are going to achieve it. Now, that's an interesting question. Because the means by which we think, and I'll talk about the church in particular here, the way in which we think the church will be at peace are often very suspect. Sometimes we think it's by political means. Sometimes we think it's by making it popular or cool or hip, which has never worked, I think. Uh, Sometimes we think it's by being a moral, upstanding community and beating our chest about it. And even while there might be a hint of truth about that one, You notice that the way Jesus describes it is uh, they will know you by your love. Not your uh, moral performance. Not the show that you put on about your own righteousness. They will know you by the actual quality of concern for others. Another way to put this is I think often the church is tempted to think we want the peace of God as an end but we are willing to use the means of Satan. We are willing to use the means of warfare, real or (laughs) metaphorical, of dominating over others, of becoming the victim that becomes the victimizer. But the peace that God brings is his doing. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? It was counterintuitive to Gideon and his men. They didn't know what God was doing. No doubt they thought this is foolish. This is a bad idea. But God knew what he was doing. God knew that the peace that he was bringing was going to be by his means. In his design. 
And so the peace that we're looking for, and this is so helpful to understand, is something that God brings. It is not the creation of the church. It is why prayer is at the heart of what we do as a church. It is why prayer is essential. Because we don't believe that the church can win its own battles. Because the power by which the church operates, the means by which it operates, are the means of peace. And I'm not saying the church has lived up to this. I think we all know many ways in which the church has failed, historically and currently. And I don't want to think that we as a congregation haven't failed in some ways. But this is what it means to live into peace, is to recognize that it is God who is bringing it. And then the church is called to live by it. However difficult and counterintuitive that might be. Because we will not achieve the peaceful ends. God will. We are called to live by peaceful means. So this calls for deep reflection. A little self-awareness on our part. By asking, we talked a lot about fear last week, by asking what our fears are. The shame, the anger that drives us into strife. And instead, seeking to live, as he tells us, by the fruit of the Spirit. The sorts of things that actually build up peace. Kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That's what it looks like to be a peacemaker. It means living into that reality, even though we are still surrounded by darkness. Outside of the church and in it. All around you and in you is living by the light, even though the darkness is still there. And we can do this, of course, because the source of peace is not us. That is our last point, of course, and the most important point is the child. The child that's born, the child that's given. Because God's work, again, is not us. It is what he's accomplishing. It is what happens when God shows up. Not when we go about our lives the best way we think possible. Peace shows up when the child shows up. And the point about the Messiah, about the one who's coming being a child, is not about his cuteness. However cute he might have been. I don't know. The point isn't his cuteness. The point is the, the shocking nature of somebody being so small and vulnerable, but growing up to shoulder such an immense calling. He has four titles. Did you notice that? In verse 6, wonderful counselor, uh, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And all of those, remember this political context of fear, all this has political overtones. And he is going to bring in peace. And in fact, the, the, the first and the last are the most obvious. Uh, the wonderful counselor uh, points us to the idea 
the idealized king who is wise, who understands, who's perceptive, right? He doesn't miss what's going on. He sees it for what it is, and he makes wise choices. Uh, to call him a prince of peace, of course, is, is one who has accomplished this peace, who delivers on the peace promised. Even the idea of the everlasting father, the third title, probably has that political connotation, right? Because in, in, the, in the ancient world, kings were often described as a father over those that they cared for. And so his care is in mind. Probably the one that's most eye-popping is the mighty God. And it's, it's interesting how more skeptical commentators try to avoid this. Um, and there are some creative translations that, that are offered, but the syntax is pretty clear. It is mighty God. Now, I don't know what the people that heard Isaiah thought about that at the time. But of course, this is God showing up in his might, in the strength of his power. Again, strangely, being born as a child. And notice this, the government that's on his shoulders, as we get into verse 7, is carried by his character, his righteousness and his justice. The peace that comes is the product of God's good rule, of his caring and just rule. And then, and then this last line, which might sound like a throwaway, right? But the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And it's important to understand this. It's important to recognize this line because it's telling us that the burning desire of God's heart is to bring peace to us. That's the thing that he's most excited about. That's the thing he's fixated on. He's fixated, in other words, on sending his son. He's fixating on, on sending his son who will go to the cross. That no matter what the cost, no matter the lengths of which he has to go, God's heart is to deliver us. God's heart is to bring peace into our lives. That's what he desires. And so 700 plus years after this prophecy, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, by the Sea of Galilee, a young boy grew up. He had been born down south in Bethlehem, where his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather David had been from. But he lived and grew up around the Sea of Galilee. And most of Jesus' ministry, in fact, took place around the Sea of Galilee. He goes down to Jerusalem a few times, most notably at the end of his life. But that's where he shows up. The very place Isaiah was talking about. And he is the light of the world. Shining into the darkness. And he exercises wisdom. I mean, no one's more discerning than Jesus, right? People try to trap Jesus all the time, and he sees right through it. And most of all, of course, 
he exercises his wisdom in going to the cross. Paul, thinking about it, says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. It's the power and wisdom of God. You see, because it's at the cross that Jesus shows us that he will bring about peace by the means of peace. That he's actually going to destroy the oppressor, sin, and evil by letting himself be destroyed by them. Little wonder that that's the defining feature of Christianity, right? It's the cross. If there's anything that summarizes the good news of Jesus, it's, that it's the cross. And if there's any way that Jesus talks about how Christians ought to leave their lives, it's taking up the cross. And in all of this, he exercises wisdom, and of course, he's exercising in that care. Because while the cross looked like a fool's errand, it was the way to break the power of sin and evil and death. So it's this exercise of power as well. The foolishness of God's power is not that he would try to defeat Satan, meeting him power for power. Because that, when he, whenever that happens, like, whatever, God's done with it, quickly. <laughs> but to deliver us and to bring us into peace with him is not a matter of power. Not naked power but it is about the power of his love. You see, it is not so much God in the whirlwind, God in the storm, that changes the strife of this world. It is God in the manger, God in our midst, God on the cross. And that makes all the difference. Because the source of peace is Jesus. The source of peace is his life given for us. Because he brings peace between us by giving himself on our behalf. And because he's given himself, he has changed who you are. He has changed your identity. You don't have anything left to prove about who you are or how valuable you are or how great you are because God has given his life for you. That frees us up then to go down the path of foolishness, to live by peaceful means with confidence that it is not going to fail. I mean, it may not change everything tomorrow. That difficult person in your family a kind word to them may not utterly change them, like at Christmas. Christmas dinner might still be a somewhat unpleasant affair with that person. My point is not that they will change them right away, but that that is the power of God at work in you. And it actually is the power of God at work in the world, is to show the, way a different, the world a different way of being. And we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. This is how it works out. It's in the fruit of the Spirit at work in your life 
and in your heart. Bringing peace by peaceful means. And when sin actually does occur, like, you know, the rare occasion it happens, it's a joke. It means living out a process of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. And those are much bigger topics than we have to talk about this morning. And it's getting late. (laughs) But that's what it looks like to live peaceably. It's not to be defensive when you commit sin against somebody else, when you harm somebody else, but to own it. To do what you can to make it right. And it's to recognize that when someone else harms you, that they're no, no different than you. And they need forgiveness because you've been forgiven. You can offer it. And it means not just leaving it there, but actually reconciling. Actively rebuilding trust and affection when there's been a rift. That's what the peace of the kingdom looks like. It isn't just sitting back. (laughs) It is about learning to have the heart of Jesus, the peacemaker himself. And again, not just thinking about it, but how we actually live it out in our relationships, in repentance, in forgiveness, in reconciling with one another. That's what peace looks like. So that when we wander out into the no man's land, in between trenches that are drawn in our lives, we know that that is not just something that's going to go away, but that will be permanent and will burn all the weapons of war, knowing that the Prince of Peace is in charge. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would teach us to be uh, peaceful, to be peaceable uh, with one another, with our families, with those we work with. Uh, Not only in action, Lord, but to foster hearts that are at peace. course, we're not really that way. Most of us have a long way to go. But we know that the peace that you're bringing is not the work of our hands, but it's a divine gift from you. We pray that you would continue to make good on it. And we have every confidence you will because it's guaranteed in Jesus and his body and blood for us. Praise you and we thank you. In his name, amen.